Before I get to the scripture reading today, you will notice that I am blowing my nose and I have a scratchy voice. And I have been praying all week the Lord would give me enough voice to be able to preach this morning. And so uh, I thank you for your prayers, those of you who've been praying for me. Uh, Micah, you might need to turn up the, the speaker. I'm not going to project as well as I normally do, but by God's grace, we will be able to still hear the same word, even if the messenger is preaching in weakness this morning. So please be with me and pray for me. Um, but let's hear our God speak from his word, the scripture passage this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Hear now the word of God. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. <coughs> Lord Jesus, in your kindness, you have given us a word today that directly addresses the very real struggles all of us live with to one degree or another. The struggle of loving you in the midst of the wealthiest, most comfortable nation that has ever existed on the face of the planet. How can we love you and not hope in things in the midst of such a time and place? Help us to see it and hear it today from your word. In Jesus' name, we ask you to send your spirit to be our helper today. Amen. You may be seated. What is rich? I was asked this one time by my boss. I was working at a furniture store in Kansas. I was moving furniture, and uh, I had a boss who paid me really well for what I did, and he was a believer. And one time he asked me this question. He, question, he said, what do you think of as rich? And I felt like a really broke person at the time, so I had a really simple answer. I don't remember my exact answer, but I remember it was something like this. I said, to, to me, rich is being able to pay your bills without worrying constantly, to have something left over, being able to do something nice with what you have left without wondering how you're going to buy food later. Um, to me, that was a pretty good definition of rich. And he looked at me and said, then nobody is rich. He said, because I have a multi-million dollar business and every day I worry about how to pay my bills. He said, that's, that's how I got to where I am to begin with. I worried about how to pay the bills. He, and he wanted me to know riches are in the eye of the beholder. Riches are in the eye of the one who has them. And as I thought about this, I was really struck by the idea that my incredibly wealthy boss, who I would have given anything at the time to be in his shoes, the thought that he didn't think of himself as rich. Um, the money and the work that it took to generate that income came with new worries all their own. Uh, he carried unique burdens that I didn't carry, carry as an employee. Every day I showed up to work and I thought, what am I delivering today? In the meantime, he thought about that and everything else going on in the business. And so the thing that I guess I, 
I'm trying to say is that relative to one another here in the United States, some Americans are rich and some are not. Uh, Relative to the rest of the world and relative to all of human history, Americans, with with a few exceptions, are very rich. We are the most privileged, powerful, wealthy, comfortable, well-fed, thoroughly entertained people in the entire history of the planet. I can think of very few rulers in the entire history of the world who lived in more comfort than your average lower-class American. Uh, Air conditioning, indoor plumbing, television, modern medicine, and a thousand other conveniences are things very few of us would give up so that we could live like Caesar or Pharaoh or Genghis Khan did. Uh, I dare say, even with the extreme financial pressures on us today, right, rising gas prices, uh, rising everything prices, um, we are still among those who would be subject, I think, to Paul's words. So I want you to see that Paul is really talking to us today. Um, he's speaking to those who are rich in the present age. You know, I hear those words today, and here's what, here's what happens in my mind. I'm always looking for someone else to be the audience for God's word. Uh, in my head, I'm always thinking, who is this really for? It can't be for me. So, like, right, if my boss was hearing this, he would be tempted to think, oh, okay, uh, Paul's talking to Warren Buffett or Tim Cook or Elon Musk, right? He's like, man, I really hope Elon hears this message that Adam Parker's preaching, right? Um, And we always do that, right? We hear God speak and we assume this word, this is for somebody else. This is for the guy next to me. This is the guy that I know is living an elaborate lifestyle, right? Um, even now, maybe you are, you're here the words that were read this morning, and you were like, as for the rich. You know, I know somebody who's thinking of buying a plane. I wonder if I could send them the link to the sermon later. Um, you know, if anybody in human history were to hear this text, I think they would say, man, I hope the 21st century Americans hear this message. I think they would say that to us. Um, I guess I'm trying to dispel this idea before we begin, because if you get stuck on it, and you, you get stuck on the idea that this is for someone else, you won't hear the rest of the message. And so I'm just going to suggest something. I'm going to suggest if you have a home to live in, if you have a bed to sleep in, if your provisions are met, then you're rich in this present age. Why? Because I believe we are each lured in by these two temptations that Paul speaks to, uh, the temptation to pride and the temptation to find hope in stuff the the temptation to find hope in idols and so if you have things then you are tempted to think that you are the reason you have those things and if you have things then you are tempted to love and hope in them and that makes things dangerous And so this morning, let's listen to Paul. Don't assume your neighbor needs to hear this. Assume that you need to hear this, okay? Our three points, the temptation of pride, the temptation of idols, and the call to worship and generosity. First, Paul talks about the temptation of pride in verse 17. He says, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. So... According to Paul, this this young minister is supposed to address wealthy people in the Ephesian church 
and he's supposed to warn them, hey, your wealth comes with something that is far more terrifying and dangerous than poverty. It comes with a temptation to haughtiness and pride. Haughty is a funny word. It's not a word for somebody pretty that's walking by. Uh, H-U-G-H-T-Y, right? I called my wife a hottie in the car last night, and in the, from the very back of the car, you just hear Amos go, gross. <laughs> sounded like a 40-year-old man. Gross. <laughs> um, it's a word... It's a word that refers to pride. It's being prideful. It's being boosted up in your own heart, right? It's the, the root of that word is lifted up. Don't be lifted up really is what the Greek is saying. Don't exalt yourself. Don't lift yourself up. You know, the idea of pride is that I'm good enough and I'm strong enough. I'm filling the blank enough, right? Whatever I think I need for the moment and I say, that's me. And, and pride might not say it, but it definitely believes it that even God isn't really necessary for me. So, so we'll say it with our lips, I need God, but in our hearts we don't believe it. Pride lifts us up to a place that isn't true. It's a place that we don't belong. And of course, pride keeps us from drawing near to God. It keeps us from calling on him when we need help. Um, pride is, is so insidious, we do not see it until it's got such a powerful grip on us that something dramatic happens in our lives and it becomes evident. Um, pride doesn't usually show up in really obvious ways. It doesn't show, it doesn't look like us standing up on a mountaintop and screaming out, I don't need God, right? We don't do that. It's way more subtle. Pride is way more subtle than that. It looks like, it looks like a lack of prayer, right? Because we don't ultimately think we need God's help. Why would I pray if I don't think that God has helped me? Or if I don't think that he's going to help me, right? That's pride. And it also means that I think I brought myself to the place where I am in life. Um, pride looks, again, it looks subtle. It looks like an unwillingness to sacrifice because we think our priorities are bigger than God's priorities. Um, it looks like me being the ruler of my life and me being the most important person in my world we naturally want to do that, and so, of course, we don't see it. When we get what we want, we don't see it. We usually need someone else to notice it. We usually need someone else to point it out. Or we at least need God to bring something into our life that jars us, that actually frightens us, that actually shakes us loose. This is actually why Paul says what he does today. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. He says to Timothy, the pastor in this church, charge them, warn them, alert them. Why? Because they need someone to do that for them. It's not our natural disposition to catch pride when it comes up in our hearts and in our lives. Because pride is hard to see, right? We, We default to it. We move towards it like gravity. So we need other people to help us. We need to be part of a church. We need to be part of a body where when people see it in our lives, they'll tell us. Um, People who aren't intimidated by us, people who aren't afraid to tell the truth. Timothy is supposed to fill that role because someone needs to do it. Someone needs to be that 
party that comes in and says, brother or sister, your life is swallowed up in pride. If Timothy won't do it, who will? Who who will warn them? Who will warn the church? We need others to tell us when pride is on the rampage in our lives. We need to welcome it when it comes. When someone tells us that we're filled up with pride, our first instinct is going to be to defend ourselves. And yet this person is doing something incredibly difficult by pointing it out. Why does Paul focus on pride when he's talking to the wealthy? I, I think it's this. There's something about being financially vulnerable that creates a sense of dependence. Um, when Jesus walks past these blind beggars in his ministry, they don't just sit there, right? They cry out to him. Why do they do that? Because they are the definition of helpless. They are the definition of dependent. They are the definition of, I need Jesus, right? They know it. And the problem is, many modern Americans in the same position, even if they were blind, might not cry out. They call their doctor, um, People who are without choices, people who are without options, they are the ones who are going to cry out and see themselves as dependents in a way that people with options might not. And so humility is a way of life for someone who has to live by grace every day. Now, even broke beggars can be full of pride. They can be angry at their situation. They can, they can have a sense of entitlement and think they deserve better, right? Pride is still there. Temptation is still there. Here's the thing, though. Paul's interested in the temptations of the wealthy today. He's not interested in the temptations of the poor here. Those who are wealthy feel less vulnerable. They feel like their life has less risk or danger built into it. They have more options. They feel secure, And they could become proud, not just because they don't feel vulnerable, but because they might become convinced it was them and their hard work and their exertion that got them there. I remember, you know, Ayn Rand, the author. uh, I don't actually know if that's the right way to say her name, but I've always said it that way. Ayn Rand said this. She said, I think I represent the proper integration of a complete human being. What a... She's delusional. She later said that her own success was all her own. She said, no one helped me, nor did I think it was anyone's duty to help me. I just think, who fed you when you were a baby? She just pops out and starts taking care of herself. making. Um, to, that's a temptation. That, the temptation to, to become proud, to... To not see the grace that you have been shown to get you where you are in the moment in which you live, right? God is very keen to make sure that his people never get to say something like that. That they never get to say, no one helped me, nor did I think it was anyone's duty to help me. Um, Look at the book of Judges chapter 7. What happens there? God intentionally whittles down Israel's army to just 300 men. And he gives them torches in jars, right? And he says, there, go out and beat the army. <laughs> and his intention is, you guys are going to go out with something that should not win. That's the point that he makes to them. And, and then he says why he does this. He says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Listen to this next part. 
lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Right? God does not want you to be able to talk like that about your life. God warns you and he warns me and he warns all of those who are tempted to be comfortable in their wealth. I will not have you boast over me that my own hand has saved me. He says that to each of us. The, the, the Puritan Thomas Brooks says it like this. Here's a wonder. God is on high, and yet the higher a man lifts himself up, the farther he is from God. And the lower a man humbles himself, the nearer he is to God. Of all souls, God delights most to dwell with the humble. It's the temptation of pride that Paul's concerned about this morning. Excuse me. Second, Paul warns about the temptation of idols. He doesn't use the word idol here, but he introduces the idea of, of idols. So, so don't think of idols as the little statues, right? Not in our culture. In our, our culture, we don't really have idols. That's not our, our temptation to have little statues that we look at and worship. Instead, think of idols as any created thing that we put our hope in. Any created thing that we put our hope in is an idol. So look at this in verse 17. Again, Paul tells Timothy to warn them. He says, if, warn the American church not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Um, look at that last part of the phrase where he talks about how God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice that Paul is not suddenly turning into an ascetic here. Um, you know, Earlier we talked about, in 1 Timothy, how Paul talked about asceticism, this view that things are bad, uh, the body's bad, it needs to be denied, so that you can really be a godly person. Um, Paul addressed those who deny marriage, um, people who tell people that they can't have certain foods, certain things to eat, and he addressed this already. He says, things are not the problem, our hearts and how they cling to those things are the problem. Remember that from earlier in 1 Timothy? Well, here, he's affirming that again, and he says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It is to be enjoyed, he says, but not hoped in. It's to be enjoyed, but not hoped in, right? You enjoy it, you don't build on it. You enjoy it, you don't hope in it. And maybe that sounds silly to you, the idea that someone would hope in things, but there is nothing silly about it. It's a serious problem. It's a serious temptation. Plenty of people live that way. We're, I think we're all tempted to live that way, um, often in ways we don't even notice. Apart from God, people can be very desperate to find hope, right? So a drowning person will latch onto anything, and they will hope in anything that they can find that might float, Right? Um, it's very dangerous to rescue someone who's drowning because the drowning person will grab you and then you can both get to drown together. Um, people will look for hope even where there isn't a reason for any. Hope that isn't even there. Um, Alexander Pope in 1733 said, hope springs eternal in the human breast. I think he was optimistic there, but he was also showing that we just make up hope. Even if we don't have any, we'll look for something. And so... Here's what we do because we're desperate. We look around. We look for something. 
And if we don't have God to anchor us, or if we are not hoping in him, we will look over at this thing that we have, or this thing that we've received, or this thing about our lives, and we will grab onto it like a drowning person. And we can make anything an idol, right? We can make an idol of something we possess, like a car or a house. We can make an idol of a person in our life, a husband, a wife, a child, a friend, or even someone we would like to have a relationship with. Um, We can make an idol out of our career. We can make an idol out of our position as a father or mother and build our whole life around that thing. Elders and deacons can make an idol out of having a title or a position of delegated authority in the church. Just think of it. And if it's created, it is a potential idol, whether we have it or whether we wish we could have it. Anything we put at the center whose removal from our life would utterly destroy us is an idol. And sometimes we don't realize it until it's taken away. Um, I may have already told this story. When I was in high school, someone handed me a little book by Sheldon Van Auken called A Severe Mercy. I'm guessing some of you may have read that book. But it was just this little paperback, and the only reason I read it was because I was totally infatuated with all of C.S. Lewis's books. And this guy knew C.S. Lewis, and on the front it said, includes previously unpublished letters by C.S. Lewis. And so I was like, okay, I'll read this book. And it was like two letters, and they were short. But I remember as I was reading this book, you have this man saying that he never realized his wife was an idol until the Lord took her from him by death. And then he talks in the book, Sheldon talks about how he had to learn in his, in his empty home what it meant to live before the face of God and not to live his life through the prism of his wife. He had so made her his idol. He had so made her the center of his life that he came to believe and this was C.S. Lewis's contribution, that she was a severe, her, her death was a severe mercy from God. And he said that God was removing that idol from his life, however painful that surgical removal may have been. And Paul says here, the problem is not that we have people in our lives and not that we, ha- that we enjoy having people in our lives. And the problem isn't that we have things and that we enjoy those things. It's that we think they will fill our hearts up and that they will give us somewhere solid to stand, right? That's the problem. And he says, Timothy, warn them not to set their hope on those things. He says, warn them, Timothy, make sure they hear it because they need to hear it because their hearts are going to tell them this stuff is good and it will last. We lie to ourselves. We have to be sober about our possessions and about our relationships. Early on in our marriage, I don't remember if it was while we were engaged or after, if it was after we were married, but I remember having a conversation with my wife where I told her, I want you to know I'm not going to satisfy you very much. And she was like, this is not very romantic, you know. And I was like, I was like, I told her I was very serious about it. Um, We had like a serious courtship. When we started dating, I said, I'm just trying to figure out if we're getting married. And she was like, me too. So it was kind of a, you know, (laughs) a state our business up front sort of a thing. And, uh. 
I don't want to waste your time, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I, I told her, I said, you were made to know God, and you were made to, to, to be, have your heart filled up by him. And if you look to me and feel disappointed by me, you need to set your hope on God, and you need to find your satisfaction in him. And so our job is to drive each other to the Lord and find our joy in him, because if we keep looking at each other and trying to find everything we want and need, we're not going to find it. We're going to make an idol out of each other. And so I told her, I'm never going to satisfy you the way that God can fill you up. And, and you know, the reality is, too, one of us is going to die first. Well, we're going to watch one of us die. One of us is going to go through the death of the other. And I don't know if she's going to see me die or if I'm going to see her die. I don't know what's going to happen. But, but if, if she puts her hope in me, then when I die, her world dissolves and her hope dissolves. And everything that made her life have any meaning dissolves. And I don't want that. And, and it's why I gave that stern reminder. And it's why I would give the stern reminder to all of you when it comes to your relationships. Every single mortal person that you lean on for your hope will dissolve eventually. It's not that you shouldn't love them. But our hope isn't in them. Right? We enjoy them. We love them. But we don't hope in them. We can love them without hoping in them. That's the difference. There's a human impulse to search for hope. We, we need it, right? We, we need it. It's, it's hard to live for a long time without hope. You can do it for a season, but even, even then hanging in there still requires some belief that something, you have to believe that something better is coming, which of course requires hope. And if you invest your hope in the wrong things, it can be very finicky indeed. It can be fragile it can be broken by so many life circumstances. You know, one minute life feels exciting and full of possibilities, and the next minute you feel like you can't imagine a way forward. Why? Because whatever your hope was, it was thin and it was vulnerable. Jesus compares that practice to somebody who builds their house on sand instead of on rock. Now, Paul doesn't say we shouldn't have things he doesn't say that people shouldn't be important to us. His letters are filled with things that he cares about. He, his letters are filled with exhortations for believers to love one another. He clearly cares about Timothy. He clearly cares about this church in Ephesus, for example. But he doesn't make an idol of them. He, he cares about them without hoping in them. Ultimately, the question is, is not whether you will love people, and it's not whether you'll care about things. The question really is, where will you rest your hope such that it cannot and will not be lost. Riches make a terrible master. So the problem is the very nature of riches themselves in general. Paul uses a word to describe riches here. What is, what's the word that he uses? The word he uses is uncertainty. He uses the word uncertainty. He says, look, riches are uncertain. You can't keep them. They diminish. They're eaten away with time and expense. We'll lose them eventually, even if you throw them in the coffin with us, right? These things are passing. They don't stay with us. We can't count on them to be our bedrock. We can't count on them to be our hope. That's what he wants Timothy to make sure that they hear loud and clear, because if you have money, then you are tempted to hope in it. <clears throat> okay, so if we're not supposed to hope in things... What are we supposed to do? What's the positive vision God has for us? Well, the, the third call Paul 
presents as the call to worship and generosity. I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer, by the way. It's right here in the text. Paul says here, don't hope in things that are uncertain, but set your hope on God. Hope in God. Give glory to God. Worship God, not things, not mortal people. Um, Think of the uncertainty of all of the stuff that he's talking about, how uncertain it all is, how we can lose it, how it can change. And then think of the alternative that Paul is setting forth. He says, God, by comparison, is what? The contrast to things. Instead of uncertain, what is God? He is certain. He is certain. He is the opposite of stuff. And so James tells us that God doesn't change like shifting shadows. And so if you go through scripture, what you find is this. God doesn't change. He isn't uncertain. You can't lose him. He'll never abandon you. He loves you. He'll never disappoint you. He will never fail you. He will always do what is right. And moth and rust can't destroy him, right? He's the contrast to the stuff. And Paul is worried about people who have stuff because that stuff presents an awful lot of possible things for them to latch onto instead of the Lord. It's an awful lot of things they might try to find hope in. It's an awful lot of uncertainty to lean all your weight on. Paul says, set your hope on God. Enjoy these things as gifts. Enjoy them for what they are. They are things to be enjoyed for the sake of God who gave them. As you enjoy them, remember who gave it. Worship your God. That's what he's saying. He's not, he actually says not to not enjoy them. He's not saying that therefore tell the rich that they should be, feel really bad for being rich. He says, make sure that they give them the right place in their life and understand what this stuff is supposed to be. But he says something else. I think it's really key to doing what he said. How can you keep from hoping in stuff? How can you do that? It's so difficult. Jesus says it's easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle. Or it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why does he say that? Because stuff is so easy to hold on tight to. He says, how can you keep from hoping in stuff? Paul says, by holding it loosely, by saying, I won't hope in this. And trying to avoid that problem by sheer willpower is not what he's calling us to. Instead, he says, you are protected from hoping in uncertain things by living in such a way that you're not leaning on them, you're not depending on them, you're willing to see it go, you're willing to give it away, you're willing to share with others, you're ready to be generous. Listen to verses 18 and 19 again. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So those who are rich are called to be generous and ready to share. Here's the thing about generosity in scripture. Generosity isn't just the fruit of a heart that hopes in God. It's also how a person keeps from hoping in idols. Giving is a protection against idolatry. Right? God, is, God has given these things to us. It's not an accident that we have stuff. Uh, but, but when God's word admonishes us to generosity, it's really telling us 
how it is exactly that we can be protected from the idols. He says, give it away. He says, give it away. Generosity is the fruit of loving God, and it's the way of seeing our love of God increase. Um, and our love of things decrease. God is, God is so wise, he gives this to us as a protection. So think about this. At the same moment he calls us to do this thing, he's also calling us to do the very thing that makes this thing the lightest and simplest thing in the world. So there's this beautiful circularity here in what he's calling us to. He says, we give so that we won't hope in things, and we give because we don't hope in things. Let me say it again. We give so that we won't hope in things, and we give because we don't hope in things. So as we give, we hope less in our stuff, and as we hope less in our stuff, we give more, which means that we hope less in our stuff, which means that we will Hope less in our stuff. <laughs> okay, I'm getting dizzy. Um, and here's what happens. Um, and you do notice here, once you have that heart change towards your stuff, it becomes easier to hold it loosely, which allows you to be generous, and it keeps you from having idols in your life. Jesus isn't telling us to sell all that we have and give it to the poor. Paul isn't doing that. He isn't specifically telling us to liquidate. But are you ready to do that? Paul does say you should be ready to do that. That's the word he uses. They need to be ready to give it away. Are you ready to develop habits that will make you more generous and help you hope in God and not in stuff? I can tell you this. You have a life full of potential idols. And if you were to go into a room and see all the stuff in your life, you could look from one thing to another to another And some of it is more obvious that you shouldn't hope in it, right? Cotton candy, I'm not going there. That's going to dissolve as soon as I I touch it, Uh, you know. But then you might have some other candidates for idols in your life that are far more tempting. Well, I want to suggest something to you. Hopefully, I've made the case that this stuff is not worth hoping in. But I can tell you one thing. Jesus is worth hoping in. He's worthy. And he won't leave you. He He's our hope who won't fail us. He's, he's our God who won't change. He's our Savior who never fails us. He's our friend that will never lose. He's the one relationship in our life that will never go away. All this other stuff, it is uncertain. It is shifting. It, it's failing, but not him. So put your hope where it belongs. Paul is telling us to do that. He's telling us, set your hope on Jesus and not in stuff. Enjoy it. It's a gift from him but be ready to let it go in an instant when he calls you to. That's what Paul wants for us. He wants protection from idols, hope in God, and generosity from the heart. We all need that message, regardless of what our bank accounts look like. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in your word today, you have pressed on us and you have challenged us, and yet even when your word is Even then, your word is like food to us. It's sweet to us like honey. So that as you challenge us, you're also giving us the very thing that you know we need and that you know will protect us from sin and idols. Would you loosen the grip of things on us? Would you help us to be ready, to be eager, to be generous? 
Protect us from putting our hope in anything but you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.